Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was Barry Goodrow's Engine Room, Love Will Lead the Way, from his excellent new album, The Road. Welcome, Barry. Hello. Great to be here. Fantastic. And uh, what we'll be doing today is uh, playing tracks from your new album, going way back to the Boston years, and then following up your journey through music over the last, well, over 40 years now. But um, it's always great to play new music at the start of the show. Um, do you want to tell me about the, the Engine Room and your new album, The Road? Uh, well, this is our second uh, recording. Uh, we did our first one back in 2017. I'm working with Brian Mace, a uh, singer and keyboard player who uh, I first met back when I had Orion the Hunter in the 80s. He was also a member of our RTZ. Tim Archibald is uh, the bass player. He was also an RTZ back in the 90s. Uh, rounded out with Tony DiPietro on drums, and um, we have three women singing backup, Mary Beth, Beth Bass, uh, Joan, Joni Cicitelli, and Terry Osoro singing backgrounds. You know, the first um, Engine Room CD was kind of me looking back at my blues roots. Uh, I really learned how to play lead guitar playing along with Chicago blues records like uh, Paul Butterfield Blues Band with great blues guitar. And of course, when... Um, you know, the English band started playing the uh, the blues, uh, kind of kicked it up with the big drum sounds and big guitar sounds. Uh, really exciting for me. So the first uh, Engine Room CD was kind of looking back at that, whereas this newest one is more of a straight-ahead rock record. This is um, kind of me looking at my influences back before the Boston days. You know, early Deep Purple, uh, Joe Walsh, uh, Really good record. Uh, a lot of great guitar on there, if I do say so myself. Yeah, you hear that in the, the track that we just played, Love Will Lead the Way, as well as our next track, Word to the, the Wise. I mean, both tracks have got that, as you're saying, it's representing your influence. You can hear Boston sound that you helped shape and broader influences. It does have that real classic rock feel. You know, it's got that acoustic 12-string sound that uh, I, I really love uh takes me back to the, uh, the the birds back in 1965. Uh, I remember I, you know, they were playing the uh, Rickenbacker 12 string guitars. And of course the Beatles were, were using them at the time. And I really wanted to have one of those. And I went to the music store and I couldn't afford one. So I ended up buying a, a Guild 12 string guitar, which I still have to this day. Uh, unlike some of the other early guitars that I bought that somehow managed to lose over the years. Prior to the pandemic, were you, were you playing live shows with uh, Engine Room? Uh, we were. You know, we uh, do a lot of uh, regional shows here in New England, and we were working regularly uh, right up until uh, the pandemic. Our, our last show was actually New Year's Eve uh, going into 2020. Unfortunately for us, we had most of this new record um uh, recorded before COVID hit. So um, we were able to finish it up, you know, online, uh, over the phone and internet and so forth. We we did actually write one song during COVID that um, we did uh, <laughs> remotely, I guess would be the best uh, way to say it. But uh, the extra time we got uh, because of the COVID, I think actually made it a much better record because we had a lot more time to kind of kick back and grow to know the songs. And uh, I think it really uh, worked to our advantage, actually. 
yeah, you can tell that love and devotion in, in the sound. Well, we had uh, Bob St. John mix the record. He's a Grammy-winning uh, producer down in Florida, and uh, he did a tremendous job. He he really adds a lot to it. Uh, you know, I think the recordings are, are all very good, but uh, he kind of kicks it up to another level.
what we're going to do now is go back towards the beginning and then we're going to build ourselves back up to your new album. I chose um, Foreplay and Long Time by Boston. I've heard that Foreplay was one of Tom's kind of earliest songs and has got that progressive edge as that you could hear, hear at the time. And But you were instrumental in getting Brad in. And can you tell me about the, the, the genesis of Boston and how you guys got together? Because I think the roots... The, you know, the roots in that can't seem to go way back. Uh, yes, I, I went to a college here in Boston, to a Boston University. And a, a friend of mine who I had been in a band with in high school was across the uh, river at MIT. And, you know, I was the first one in my family to go to college. And I was really trying to concentrate on, on doing a good job there and kind of step away from the music. But the, the high school friend and I decided, well, you know, we want to still play some music. Let's get together and, you know, just play for the fun of it. And, you know, he lived at a fraternity house at MIT. And, you know, we get together and, and play at the uh, the fraternity parties and whatever. And we decided to add a uh, keyboard player. So I put an ad in the local paper and uh, Tom Scholes answered the, the advertisement. Of course, Tom had just graduated from MIT with a master's degree in five years. And I think he felt comfortable coming back on campus and being around, you know, MIT people and so forth. So we ended up joining the, the band. And the, the very first original piece of music that we uh, played was uh, Foreplay, before it was called Foreplay. Uh, you know, it was uh, one of the first pieces of music that Tom had written. Of course, he... Uh, was a trained uh, classical uh, pianist. So, you know, that's kind of the, uh, the uh, classic uh, music influence there. And, um, you know, that ended up being the introdu- introduction for uh, the song Long Time late, later on. What's the sort of span of time in, in relation to the sort of first time you were playing some no, you, material and then getting... You're, you're really going to have me age myself <laughs> now. Uh, <laughs> Actually, the the first time we played together was the fall of 1969. I graduated from high school in 1969. And and the first recording that we did was right around that time. And of course, uh, it wasn't until 1975 that we really had any uh, interest from record companies. And of course, the first record came out in 1976. So, you know, there was a lot of... uh, a lot of warm-up time there. <laughs> we do any live shows at the time? Uh, well, we went from the uh, fraternity house uh, to uh, Jim Mesdia was playing drums at that time. And uh, we ended up moving over to uh, his basement where we did all our, our the earliest uh, recordings. And then uh, Tom built his own uh, recording equipment. And then things moved from there to uh, Tom's basement. and. Uh, of course, I think everybody's heard the story about uh, him putting in together his own home studio and the and the and the recordings coming out of there, and it's all true. <laughs> Could you tell that you know playing the material that it was you know something really really good? Well, it's funny. I, I just came across. I was going through a bunch of old cassettes, and a lot of people don't even know what they are. The little uh, <laughs> the little tape. Uh, tape pieces there and I came across all the early recordings of Boston and uh, a lot of the songs that were on the first record were on that tape in different forms in fact the the verse and the chorus to uh, more than a feeling were on two different songs uh, that ended up 
being reworked into another song. So a lot of the uh, original material was like that. There were bits and pieces that worked that, that survived and others that didn't.
do you think that all those years of you, Tom, and Brad, and Saban, working on that material and honing it was one of the reasons why it was such a special album in terms of the, the amount of hours that was put into it, do you think? Oh, absolutely. And and I think uh, the fact that we faced so much rejection uh, was a lot of uh, drive to, to make it better. Well, I know that Tom absolutely hated being turned down or saying something wasn't good enough. So I think that created a lot of drive to make it better and to keep pushing it on and and to prove that uh, what we thought was great uh, was really great and was was going to be popular at, at one point. You know, when we finally did get a record contract, we had hoped that we would sell, you know, 100,000 records, 200,000 records, which would be enough for the record company to allow us to do another record and maybe have a, a, a musical career. And of course, you know, we sold a, a, a million records in just the first several weeks. So, I mean, it took off beyond anybody's expectations, certainly our expectations. Let me take you home tonight. So that was, that's one of Brad's songs, but I understand that was one of the, the few tracks that's actually was recorded in the studio. Uh, yes. The, um, the recording company brought in uh, John Boylan as a producer. He actually went to uh, Tom's basement studio when they were first introduced and he looked around at the studio and went back to the record label and said, Oh, there's no way we can do a record there. Mm. But uh, eventually he and Tom worked out a deal and, and basically John was our go-between between the band and, and the uh, record label. And in order to have the record label think that we were out in California recording the whole record there, he brought all of us without Tom out to California and we did uh, some recording sessions there. We actually recorded three songs. So one of them was Let Me Take You Home Tonight. That was the one that made it onto the record. And then later, Tom came out in the West Coast and he and Brad did uh, redid some of the uh, vocal tracks. But the uh, the bulk of it was done in, in Tom's basement. And and there was a certain amount of a ruse going on there to for the label to think we were in a major studio when Tom was still in, in the same studio we had done the demo in. You knew Brad before, Tom? Yeah, I, actually, when I was in high school, uh, a guitar player friend of mine said he decided to leave the band he was in, and he didn't want to leave the band high and dry, so he was bringing me in to audition for the band and introduce me and say, well, here's Barry. Uh, I want him to uh, be my replacement when I leave the band. So I went and uh, tried out for the band, and uh, we played uh, Communication Breakdown by Led Zeppelin with Brad singing lead. And I had never heard anything like that in my life. It was just, it was just fantastic. Of course, when the guitar player said, I'm going to leave the band, they said, well, we don't want you to leave. And, you know, I, I didn't get the gig obviously. And, but I remembered having uh, heard Brad sing and after Tom and I had been working together for a bit, I suggested that uh, we get together with Brad. So uh, a friend of mine had a, uh, uh, Sunday afternoon jam session here in the in the area. So Tom and I went and met Brad there. Tom played the Hammond organ. I played guitar. Brad sang, and we did Whipping Post by the Almond Brothers, and uh, it was just so so special. I mean, we we realized we really had something there, and you know, Brad took over as the uh, the lead singer at that point.
And it was more than a feeling that um, propelled that album and Boston into, well, one of the biggest bands of all time, really. And I guess um, Tom's attention to detail in terms of and dedication in, in recording and and craft, also one of the reasons why that is that song, as well as the record, is, is so great sounding. Well, when you think about it, uh, the album was, was years in, in the making. He didn't have all the equipment that he ended up using to to do the first record right away. It took years for him to put together the equipment he needed to do it. So, you know, it wasn't like the band got together in six months, we wrote a record and it came out. It, it was years and years of the making. And as I said, there, there were a bunch of songs that uh, were around for a long time. And, and we ended up taking bits and pieces from, you know, the, the parts that worked and and, you know, just kept at it until it, uh, it was done. <laughs> that acceleration in terms of how big the band was, was stratospheric because it, it seemed like looking back one month, you're playing the first shows in small clubs and then it seems pretty not long away and you're in the arena. Yeah, well, we started, uh, they had booked uh, dates for us uh, right after the record came out in uh, some clubs in the uh, Midwest of the, of the States. And, you know, we were playing in clubs that hold 500 people and we had thousands of people outside trying to get in. So it was obvious there was something happening pretty, pretty quickly. And our first major tour was opening up for, for Black Sabbath. You know, the record came out in August. We went out in the fall with uh, Black Sabbath opening for them, which would have seemed like an odd pairing, but uh, it actually worked out really great. They of course, we were on the way up. Black Sabbath uh, had been around for a while. They, I wouldn't say they were on the way down, but they weren't uh, as popular as they, they had been. And they appreciated that, mm-hmm. that we were selling a lot of tickets. So they treated us great. And, you know, we, we stayed friends with them for years. And Sib and I went to all the Black Sabbath shows in the area for, for years after that. And of course, you know, the Black Sabbath crowd was uh, largely a male crowd. And I think there were probably more women at the Black Sabbath shows when we played than uh, <laughs> there ever was before that. <laughs>
talks about that span of time crafting the first Boston album but the second Boston album Don't Look Back there isn't that comparatively that much time in terms of the release of that second album do you think the success of the first put pressure on the band to get more material out as quick as possible to capitalize on the success and do you think that that created more pressure oh absolutely we toured for uh, like a year and a half on the first record and as soon as we got home from the tour for the first record, the record company, well, where's the new record? <laughs> what new record? You know, we, we've been on tour. We haven't thought, even thought about it yet. So there, there was a tremendous amount of pressure to, uh, to follow it up. And, you know, I had hoped that the rest of the band members would have uh, more input into the second record since there was all that pressure to get it done more quickly. But it actually kind of, uh, ended up just the opposite where Tom kind of holed up by himself and just brought people in when, when he needed parts played and which was, you know, disappointing for us uh, as the band members. And, and of course, um, you know, the record ended up coming out before Tom was really happy with it. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the hardest parts of, of making a record is knowing when it's done. <laughs> And uh, he didn't. He didn't feel it was so it was done. And but you know, I think it's a it was a really great record. And um, you know, it didn't have the success of the first record, but it still sold whatever it was six six seven million copies. And what could you can't, you can't call that a disappointment by by any stretch. When you listen to that album, tracks like "Feeling Satisfied." It still holds up today. It's still got that great sound. Yeah, yeah, I think. Uh, the both the uh, first and second record have held up really well. I mean, what what is it? Forty five years now. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs>
And Don't Look Back, or the title track of the album, is another great song from that LP. I, I know that was the most uh, complicated song on the record. Obviously, it was long and uh, a lot of different parts coming in and out, and harmonies and guitar harmonies and so forth. So, yeah, I played the slide guitar on that and the the single line uh, guitar parts on that were mine. The, the harmony parts uh, were uh, Tom's.
assume it was the pressure that meant Tom wanted a bit of a break? Yeah, well, you know, we went on a tour on the second record and toured uh, literally for a year and a half straight. You know, we went from clubs and opening up in arenas for the first record to headlining. And by the time we finished the second record, we were headlining stadiums. So, uh, you know, it was on a massive scale at, at that point. And Tom wasn't happy with the record label. He wasn't happy with the management at the time. And he wanted to step back from it. And he told us to, uh, he was going to take a year off without recording. And if the rest of us uh, wanted to uh, get into something else, work with another act to do a solo or record, now would be the time. And honestly, I hadn't really thought about doing a solo record. I was always a, a a band player. So I started writing some songs. And, uh, you know, of course, I, I brought Brad in. Uh, Sid Hash on the drummer was one of my best friends. I saw him every day. So it just felt natural to have him uh, playing the drums on it. And we put several songs together. And I, we, Brad and I brought him down to Tom to his studio to listen to. And my hope had been that he would say, you know, one of the songs I, I really like and I'll consider it for a Boston record. And if that had happened, I would have been thrilled to have a song on a Boston record. But Tom said, uh, well, you know, if, uh, if you do a solo record, I'd like to produce it. Well, you know, we realized that the record company wanted another record as soon as they could get one. And Tom working on a, a solo record for me would, would not fly with the record label. So we continued on recording, and when we had enough material together, presented it to the record company, and they liked it. So I went ahead and uh, put it out as, as a solo record. I mean, the album as a whole, as well as songs like Dreams, for many people, you've got those first two Boston albums, but then you've got your solo album, and there's just a clear lineage there in terms of how they sound, and they, they, they seem to complement each other. It does seem a bit of a shame that... You've got Tom's songwriting, you've got Brad, you've got yourself. It would only have strengthened Boston even, even more, potentially. Yeah, well, I mean, looking back at 2020, uh, you know, <laughs> things become really clear. Uh, you know, honestly, you know, I was given a, a year of time frame to do another project. And, you know, I was trying very hard to get that in that time frame. It turns out that the record was out. Uh, nine months after we had that meeting where he said he was taking a year off. So I had managed to get it done in, in that time frame. You know, looking back, if I had known the record was going to be the first thing I was doing outside of the band rather than something I was doing on the side, I, I would have handled it differently. And, and honestly, I think I probably would have had it be a band project rather than a, a solo project. But uh, of course, Hindsight being 2020, that's easy to say. I've read that it was the way the record company potentially marketed your album that seemed to potentially disillusion things with Tom. Yeah, they they had a, um, a promotional campaign. It was uh, six million people have heard the sound of his guitar. We want to introduce you to its owner. And to me, that said... Well, here's the other guy that you don't know about that we want to introduce you to. Of course, Tom took that as here's the guy behind Boston. And he was obviously very angry about that and went back to the record company and, and uh, had them 
pull back on the advertisement campaign for it. And, and eventually that led to, uh, to me leaving the band. Lost in a life of luxury, living out all your fantasies. I've been down since you went away. It wasn't love, but it felt okay. Across a range of your projects, there is a real theme about the people that you've worked with and the family tree of, of Boston. Can you tell me about the roots of Orion the Hunter then? Well, uh, Fran Cosmo, a, a singer, I brought in for my uh, on my solo record. You know, I, I realized that having Brad sing the whole record was 
to Boston, right? Yeah. You know, I, I was I was I was not trying to make it the you know Boston full Boston a Boston light or whatever. I I was trying to do something outside of Boston, and um, some of our crew members had introduced me to Fran Cosmos. You know, great singer, really super on stage. So I brought Fran in. And Fran had written some songs, and we ended up uh, using some of his songs on the record. And great guy. We get along great. So after I left Boston, he seemed the natural to uh, to be the person to work with. So Fran and I uh, started the, the Orion Hunter Band, and he and I co-wrote uh, most of the material on the record with some help from uh, from Brad. So you ran was one of the, the key tracks. Who wrote that uh, song in particular then? Actually, Fran wrote the music and I wrote the lyrics on that one, which is a little unusual. Lately, most of the writing I, I do is the music and the singer does the lyrics. So, Orion the Hunter, you, you actually toured with Aerosmith? We, we did, yes. Uh, we we, uh, we did the Back in the Saddle tour, which was uh, the, the tour that Aerosmith did when the original band members got back together after having broken up. They they might have been back in the saddle physically, but they weren't back in the saddle uh, as far as everything else goes. And uh, they still had all their demons going on. So it was really uh, a, a pretty interesting tour. You know, they, they had uh, stiffed people so many times not showing up at gigs that they didn't sell any tickets in front. So we would go to an arena and they would have sold no tickets in front. And the local radio station would say, Aerosmith is at the venue doing the sound check. And they would get a walk up that would fill the, the whole arena. And that happened time after time. And it was uh, quite an interesting experience, but uh, worked out really well for us. Uh, their fans uh, liked what we were doing and we went over really well. So it, uh, it was a fun time.
And then after that period, Fran replaced Brad in Boston? <laughs> well, after that, I, I started, um, I, I think I mentioned Brian Mace, uh, who I'm working with today still. Uh, he and I continue working together after uh, Ryan the Hunter. He, he had joined Ryan the Hunter as our, our keyboard player on tour. And we were writing material together. And, um, you know, we worked with a, another singer, Fergie Fredrickson, who had been the uh, singer in Toto. And uh, Fergie was a great guy, great singer. We got along really well. And, you know, we put together a demo and uh, we did a showcase for uh, a record label. And unfortunately, they chose not to sign us. And, uh, you know, Fergie hadn't. There, obviously, there's no money in, in doing demos and, and showcases. So Fergie decided he needed to move on and do something where he was going to be able to earn a living. So I brought Brad back into the fold. I said, well, you have some songs. Can you come and, and sing these for me to, to work out the material? And, uh, you know, we had a few songs and we had more songs. And then it got to the point where we had a whole record together and we decided, well, what the heck, let's go ahead and, and, and make a record with it. So Brad stepped out of Boston to do the RTZ record, and Tom ended up hiring Frank Cosmo to replace him in Boston. So uh, <laughs> I guess it says a lot about my uh, taste in lead singers. So. <laughs> and our next track is actually RTZ and uh, Face the Music from Return to zero and um you did have a certain amount of chart success was it the grunge era sort of soon changing the scene oh uh, yeah nirvana came out and it just totally kicked us in the ass uh you know i, I think if the record had come out a year earlier or maybe even six months earlier we would have had a lot more success with it but the whole grunge era it happened and and people just decided they didn't want anything to do with classic rock anymore and uh that really killed us. And, you know, MTV was still going pretty strong at that point. And, you know, we, we did a, uh, a video for Face of Music, which was our first single. And uh, the record label had um, shown us uh, three reels from three different directors and, and asked us to pick one of them to, uh, to do the video. And we picked uh, Bob Dylan's son at the time was, was a video director. We picked him. And we were flying out to L.A. to do our first video. And we got the word from our manager, well, the record label has uh, cut the budget for the video. And we decided, well, we're going to go anyway and, you know, we'll make the most of it. Well, when we got, got to the set, they said, well, we have this set up here and this set up, but you know, we can't use those because of the budget. So what it came down to, the whole video was pretty much the band on a pedestal performing the song. And that was it. And it was awful. And it wasn't really his fault because he couldn't afford to use all the, the stuff he had planned to use. So we submitted the, the video to the record label. And the record label was like, oh, this video is horrible. <laughs> and it was like, well, we picked from the people you chose to, for us to, to pick from. And then you killed the budget. So, I mean, you know, it's not our fault. So eventually we talked them into doing another video for Face of Music. And the second video came out great. I was really happy with. But unfortunately, by that point, the song, which had been charting really well and, and, and doing, doing well on radio, started going the other way. 
So we didn't really get the uh, the play on MTV that we needed to uh, to break through. So that that was a, a difficult situation. It seems ironic that one of the key tracks that marked that shift away into grunge smells like Teen Spirit, which was partially inspired by More Than a Feeling, and you can you can hear that in the guitar riff on of both tracks. And yeah. it it seems unfortunate that it, it also hindered. RTC. <laughs> well, I've heard that Dave Grohl was a was a big Boston fan. Actually, Sebastian's uh, daughter met him on an airplane one time. They sat next to each other, and he went on and on about what a big Boston fan he was. So uh, I imagine that had something to do with it. I, I don't know. I can't blame you. Nobody wants to be the fool. Face the music. It's all in front of you. You can get it if you really try. You can get it if you don't ask why
you continued working with Brad for quite a number of years and um, one of the, the great tracks that you recorded with Brad before you passed away was Rocking Away. Can you tell me about the inspiration for, for, for that track and the period around the release of that single as well? Well, Brad and I had done a, a CD back um, in 2003 called Dope, Dope Goudreau. Uh, basically, home recording. I've got a small studio here at home that uh, I record in. And I was working on some songs and I brought Brad over to, to sing on them and um you know, eventually we we had enough material to put a record together. So we thought, you know, let's just release it ourselves, uh, you know, on the internet and, and so forth. And and we did that in 2003. Um, one of the songs, What You Leave Behind, uh, did fairly well for us. People seem to really relate to that song. Uh, Rockin' Away came in 2006, which was 40th anniversary of, uh, of the first Boston record. And at that time, Tom Scholz and I had been back in touch. Uh, we had been talking over the phone and, you know, we were talking about getting together and meeting and trying to break the ice after years of uh, not speaking to each other. And uh, he was doing uh, remasters of the first two Boston records. And he sent me the remaster of the second Boston record. And I, I hadn't listened to the record in, in years. And I was sitting in my studio listening to it. And I thought, man, I... I don't know if I remember even how to play this. And I picked up my guitar and I, I was playing along with, with the record. And at the end of it, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we wrote a song that kind of thanked the fans for all the years of supporting the band and, you know, kind of nod to them. And so I wrote the, the musical track and I gave it to Brad and told him what my idea was. And he wrote the lyrics to it. And uh, we presented it to, to Tom sort of as a, olive branch so to speak to and uh, tom listened to it and he said he liked it but um unfortunately he didn't uh use the song and and then after that things between him and i didn't really pan out and uh we went our separate ways so so after brad died in in 2007 his family and i decided that we would uh re-record the song save his vocals uh from the demo that we did and uh, released the song, and we did that. And the lyrics to that, a celebration of music and his life, in a way, it seems to add that extra poignance. Yeah, it was it was an eye to the fans for still being with the band after after all that time, and you know, it was kind of a reconciliation.
we're back up to um, Barry Goodrow's Engine Room, the track Time, from the, the debut album that you made with Engine Room. Sib's passing is, has got a bit of a connection with this track, is, is that correct? Yeah, it does. Um, you know, Sib and I had, um, you know, we've been friends, we were friends since uh, we were, I was 15 years old, we were friends for, and music mates for, for 50 years. And Sib and I had a, a an act that we didn't do a whole lot of shows. We did uh, just a, a few shows a year, but we had a, uh, a gig that we did every year in a cruise ship. We'd go out and, um, and there were a bunch of different acts on the cruise and we knew all the other acts. And it was basically a paid vacation. We could bring our families and, uh, and we were out for a week and we only did one show. It was a pretty cushy gig. <laughs> so uh we were doing that gig, and uh, unfortunately, during the, the show, uh, Sib passed away. Tough. Uh, very, very tough situation there. Awful. Yeah. So when we were playing the song Time with uh, my new band, we always made it uh, a nod to uh, to Sib. Uh, yeah. And the song itself has just got that, um, that blues rock yeah. feel, but the lyrics as well. And the harmonies, again, it's really, really touching. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I think the girls singing back up on that really uh, add that, that little uh, special sauce, we call it, uh, kind of a nod back to the uh, to the 70s and uh, you know, kind of a Derek and the Dominoes uh, kind of feel, you know. Hand. When the 
I did promise we'd get back up to the new album. We have the title track of that, The Road. What's the writing pr- writing process for this album? Uh, well, all the band members are, are uh, involved in the writing. Uh, you know, a lot of the time I'll, I'll have a, a chord change and I'll bring it to the band and we'll kick around the chord change and they'll, they'll make uh, some suggestions and arrangement ideas and so forth. Most of the lyrics on this uh, record were were Brian's. If you look to the bands that have the most longevity, it's the bands that uh, that share the credit, and I, I think it's important that that, that we do that and, and not argue about who killed who as far as you know who wrote what. Uh, you know, as long as a good song comes out of it, I don't care where the ideas come from. Yeah, people can uh, get a copy of the album Barry Goodrose Engine Room dot com. Yes, uh, it's available on uh, iTunes and Apple Music and uh, most of the download services. And uh, you can get a physical copy of it by going to the website and, uh, you know, we'll get it out to you. (laughs) There is a bit of a sort of tenuous link in relation to our final track, The Road, and hopefully getting on the road soon when when it's safe to do so as well. So hopefully you'll be gearing up for some shows so everyone can hear the new material. Well, we have a, um, a show booked this summer for the for the release and in June, and we're hopeful that we'll actually be able to do it. Things seem to be getting better here, uh, you know, Massachusetts and the states. 
who knows what's going to be happening in June, but we're hopeful that, uh, that we'll be able to pull that off. And, and by later in the summer and the fall, I think we'll be out and hopefully getting back uh, at least close to normal. Well, that the plan to kind of just continue um, playing live, maybe some more writing and recording. And, uh, you know, given the reception that Barry Goodrow's engine room is, is having, is the plan just to, to keep on going? That's the plan. Keep on going. I, I'm, I've always done what I love to do, make music, play in, play in front of people. And uh, that's what I intend to keep on doing. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Barry. It's been so brilliant to hear the stories and the music that you've helped craft over the last 40 something years. Who's counting? Who's, Who's counting? counting? <laughs> <laughs> all I've got to say is um, all the best with continued success for the new album and all the best and hopefully a, a speedy return to, to playing live shows uh, very soon. Thank you again. It's been a huge pleasure and honour to talk to you. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate the support. Okay, Barry. Thanks a lot for your time. Much appreciated. Okay. All right. Thank you. We were driving down to Texas on a smoky, dusty road We fell asleep in Texas I was in Texas when I woke She sang me a song It was so sweet It was the road Played my guitar in and I opened up my case She had me a silver dollar And her hand caressed my face She sang me a song It was so sweet It was the road Outside my window, 
shouting my name at you tonight Singing about things that only she could know She was the road Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.